exciting rock show for you and this is episode 123 we talk about muddy waters and i got the host with the most the person i got all the answer that's going to bring you people to closer way of knowing who muddy water was he's the guy with the most answer, the genius the one and only rocker mike hey everybody and this everybody this is his show i'm just <laughs> i'm just here to make sure he does a good job. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't do it without him. I couldn't do it without him. All right. So, Rob, right. Rob we're, How you doing? we uh, haven't done a show live yeah, in a while. We haven't done a, a video in a while. So, yeah. Uh, tonight, we love you guys. Tonight's episode is about Muddy Waters, the great Chicago blues guy. Uh, probably in top three for me. Uh, I love him. I love Howlin' Wolf. Uh, who else? Son House, we did all those blues yeah, guys. Well, that's, for, that's for, uh, Who was the one guy that actually made money in Chicago and had a bad Howlin' Wolf? Howlin' Wolf, Wolf. yeah, crazy. And Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf had a, had a nice little rivalry going. We'll talk about that a little bit. Now, Muddy uh, was probably the most commercially successful out of the out of those blues guys. Um, he would influence everybody. Okay, uh, especially the British scene. Um, they all did. Uh, they, they, they all did. But uh, Muddy, I mean, the Rolling Stones wouldn't have gotten their name without Muddy Waters because they took it from his song, Rolling yeah. Stone. Okay, so let's get right into it now. He was born April 4th, 1913. As, uh, his name was McKinley Morganfield. Now, Muddy's birth date and location has always been uncertain. Okay, he stated at times that he was born in uh, Rolling Fork, Mississippi in 1915. But other evidence shows that he was actually born in Jugs Corner in a neighboring uh, Issaquina County in 1913. So kind of not sure. Now, before his fame, before he got big, his birth on his marriage license said 1913. And... Even on his union card, it said 1913. So I think so when what he was he born. Well, I would think if he got famous, he shaved two years off his age. Maybe thought it would help. Um, but in the mid 1950s, Muddy started saying his you know was born in 1915. Uh, the 1920 census has him as five years old in in 1920. So that would either be 1914 or 1915, depending on when they did it. Uh, so, you know, whatever it is, it is. It doesn't matter. His gravestone actually says 1915. He was raised by his grandmother. Her name was Della Grant. Uh, his mother died shortly after his birth. And Della gave him the nickname Muddy. And it was because he used to like to play in the muddy waters of the nearby Deer Creek. It was a dirty son of a yeah, bitch. Yeah, dirty kid. Dirty kid. <laughs> now, 
the waters part of his name would come later uh, after he learned to play harmonica and started playing around doing the blues. Uh, somebody added waters to so it. So, Mike, was he self-taught? Did he teach yes. himself? Yeah. Like, this is a guy yeah. that, like, all the yeah. other Bruce Singy just picked it up and knew yeah. what he was doing. Right. He lived in a place wow. called Stovall Plantation, okay? Uh, Stovall, I believe, was the name of a colonel or something in that yeah. area. The plantation was named after him. Uh, he worked there, okay, and um, he learned how to play guitar. Uh, first, he learned how to play harmonica, okay. Uh, he got his start really singing in and fe feeling for music in a Baptist church, like so many of them. Okay? It's amazing that yeah. so many guys that we have talked about, they're all from churches. Mm -hmm. He said that's where not all this thumping and moaning from yeah. the church and everything. So... Uh, by the time he was 17, he had a horse that he used on the plantation. He sold it for uh, $15. That's crazy. $15. And, and I would have taken that horse for $15. No, he, gave, he gave $7.50 to his grandmother. And he took the other $7.50 and he went through the Sears Roebuck catalog and he bought himself a guitar. All right. And in those days, if you bought a guitar from the Sears catalog, it actually came from Chicago guitar so he began he 250 for that guitar. yeah yeah kept a few bucks for himself or whatever. it was instead of yeah. the people right or... right now he began playing guitar and harmonica singing locally uh around the area and on the plantation he would actually do shows there as well in the early 1930s muddy accompanied uh bluesman big Joe williams that's a big guy actually. right on a tour of the mississippi delta area uh, he was playing harmonica mostly on that tour with with Big Joe. Now, Joe, Big Joe Williams, unfortunately, last too long. He had to kick him off the tour because Muddy was stealing all his women. All his women, <laughs> all the lady fans, they loved they loved Muddy more than so Big Joe. Has, so this guy was a young kid, teach himself. He's already on tour. Yep. So this guy was already a talented guy without people seeing. What uh, he it was, was a doing. it was a natural talent. It right. was absolutely a natural talent. Whatever I it was. I need to ask these questions because Rocker Mike has a lot of answers. <laughs> I try, and I need I try to, keep, to have the answer for I you. I need Rob. to keep him, son of a bitch, on his talk. Keep, 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 keep me sharp. Keep me sharp, right? So, um, in August of 1941, uh, a man named Alan Lomax went to the Stovall Plantation in Mississippi and was on behalf of the Library of Congress. Uh, he wanted to cord money. And, wow. and, 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 you know, they were, they, what they were doing, if you remember Alan Lomax, we talked about him during yeah. Black History Month, how he had, uh, they were looking for Robert Johnson and all that. And he, Lomax was, was recording these old blues guys. He found Sun House. Yeah. Okay. Instead of. Yeah, and, um, and I believe if the story is right in my head, I, I, I believe that Muddy Woods steered him towards Sun House. Okay. And said, well, you know, you got to find that guy. Okay. So um, he recorded a couple of songs for Lomax for the Library of Congress, and Lomax gave him 20 bucks, okay, and uh, as a check, and a couple of copies of a single that, of, the, of the songs that he did. And he was ecstatic. He was like, holy shit, okay? And he ran down to the local corner store where there was a jukebox, and he, and he just was playing it all night. Okay, he was just like, wow, he couldn't believe it. The whole thing really gave him confidence just hearing his own voice on a record you know now lomax would come back again 
1942 and record him one more time. Uh, both sessions would end up being released by Testament Records as Down at Stovall's Plantation. Okay. But you know what? They can't get any money out of there if it's the government taping you. You know that? So he can take money. It's almost like, it's like public domain, I think, in a way, right? It really uh, is public yeah, domain. Yeah, yeah. Now, Chess Records would also release those tracks years later as Muddy Waters, The Complete Plantation Remix. Uh, that came out in 1993, and later on in 1997, they remastered it. In 1943, uh, full of confidence from, from doing the recording, Muddy headed to Chicago with the hope of becoming a full-time musician. Uh, he would always remember the day that he arrived in Chicago. Okay, he never Did he play that whole Sydney circuit? So was he he would, that? yeah, he would. You, you know, in time, he was. I was everybody he was a, had to do that. I thought he was a bigger singer than that. No, no. Even right. look, even guys that were having number one hits were rich in the fifties. That's so because it was it was guaranteed gigs money and money. Right. Yeah, you know, so. um when he got to Chicago, he always said, you know, that was the biggest moment of his life. That was the um, He would live for a little while with a relative and work in a factory. Uh, he drove a truck for a while to get some extra money. And at night, he would start performing. Okay, so he was a hardworking guy. Money. Very hardworking man. Big Bill Bruzy, one of the biggest Chicago blues guys around at the time, gave him, gave him an opening slot opening for him at a gig at this uh he would play in a lot of rowdy clubs in chicago and he gave him a chance and uh he he was a hit okay but what he realized is he had to really buy an electric guitar because at these rowdy clubs they couldn't hear hear couldn't hear him so he bought his first electric guitar in 1944 um and muddy was playing a new kind of blues compared to what some of these others were playing. Uh, his blues was more beat. Okay, it wasn't as sad as some of the other bands. Uh, Willie Dixon, the great songwriter and, and blues guy, said Muddy added some pep to the blues. Yeah. Okay, and he definitely did. In 1946, uh, Muddy recorded some songs for a man named Mayo Williams at Columbia Records. Uh, he had an old fashioned combo of clarinet saxophone and piano backing him up um yeah the songs were released a year later on the philadelphia based label called 20th century now interestingly enough uh it wasn't released under his name there's no muddy waters listed for that so what did they do a big band they they called him sweet lucy carter okay Uh, james sweet james sweet lucy carter excuse me and his orchestra. I don't know why they did that. Got no idea. But he was not billed as Muddy Waters. But it's very interesting stuff. Now, later in 1946, he would record for uh, the label Aristocrat Records in Chicago, which was run by uh, two yeah, very yeah. two very important guys in the Chicago blues scene, Leonard, Leonard and Phil Chess. Uh, right, Leonard and Phil Chess. Now, of course, you know they would start Chess Records. Yeah. In 1947, uh, he played guitar with Sonny Land Slim on, with uh, Sonny Land Slim on piano. Uh, they did some cuts called "Gypsy Women Woman" and "Little Ann May." These tracks got shelved; they didn't put them out. But in 1948, 
the songs I Can't Be Satisfied and I Feel Like Going Home became hits. Yeah, they were released and they were in the R&B charts. Uh, His popularity in the clubs exploded at that point. And soon after, Aristocrat Records became Chess Records and they signed him up. Yeah. Now, Muddy Ward... Which was was a good deal for him, right? It was a very good deal. He made that label for them, basically. Um, Yeah, okay. Now, Muddy Waters signature tune called Rolling Stone also, also became a hit that year. Uh, you don't buy beer, you only rent it, Rob. Okay. Initially, the Chess Brothers would not allow Muddy Waters to use his working band yeah. to record. He had a great band, but they wouldn't let him use it. Instead, he was provided with a backing band, uh, which was adequate. Uh, Ernest Big Crawford Babyface Leroy Foster and Johnny Jones. Gradually, as time would go on, uh, they would be he would be allowed to to use certain people uh, as his band. Now, in September 1953, he was recording with one of the best blues bands ever put together. Uh, you had Little Walter on harmonica. You had Jimmy Rogers on guitar. You had Elgin Evans on drums and Otis Spahn on piano. Uh, that's, you know, in, in, in the world of blues, music, that's, that's big. Um, this was the band that recorded, with the help of songwriter Willie Dixon, uh, tracks like Hoochie Coochie Man and I Just Want to Make It To You. So when you hear those songs, the original versions, it's that band. Now, in 1952, <clears throat> um, Little Walter would leave the band uh he would come back and with him many times afterwards but uh he kind of left his band to start his own thing because he had a single called juke that did very well um in 1954 howlin would come to chicago and pretty much right off the bat there was a rivalry between the two uh he would be signed to chess as well with muddy waters uh and uh you know, we did a great show back in February about Hal and Wolf. You could check it out. But uh, Willie Dixon was writing songs for both of these guys. And uh, there was a lot of rivalry back and forth as to, you know, who was going to have the better song. And, uh, you know, sometimes Hal and Wolf would, uh, if Willie Dixon told them that, you know, Hal and Wolf wanted the song, he would want it. So it was it was a trick that he did sometimes to get Hal and Wolf to take a song. If he, if he thought that Muddy Water didn't want it, that he would take it just to be, be spiteful. And they did that back and forth to each other. Um, now, in 55, Jimmy Rogers would leave that band as well. And uh, he would go work on his own stuff. Uh, but finding quality musicians for Muddy Waters was not hard. Uh, everybody wanted to work with the guy. Uh, so he could always find top quality musicians to work with him. Um, through the 1950s, oh, 1950s, right? The, the the Billboard R&B charts would be uh, that's where most of these hits happen, and it's classic stuff. Uh, songs like "Sugar Sweet," "40 Days," and "40 Nights," "Don't Go No Farther." Uh, in 1956, saw the release of one of his best-known songs called Got My Mojo Working. Uh, interestingly enough, that song actually never charted as a single. It didn't do well, but it's, it became like one of his biggest songs. Because in life, you know, he kicked ass. Um, in 1958, saw the release of a 
best of, his first best of, called The Best of Muddy Waters on Chess Records. And, and it was number one. Did it, it, it did very well, yeah, in the R&B charts now. So this guy did pretty well recorded. Like, he was pretty well known. Like, he's like the godfather of the Bruins. Yeah, I mean, if there's one guy you can point to, uh, there were other people, but, 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 but you know, guy, he's, he's almost, took it to a new level. He he kind of is a bridge between the older blues guys that were acoustic. Yeah. Okay. Guys like Sunhouse, Robert Johnson, guys like that, Lead Belly, and and, and you know, Charlie, Charlie Patton. Charlie Patton was acoustic. Yeah. Muddy played acoustically, and, and they said, you know what, I got to take it to a new level, and he did. And okay. He did. And uh, and in in doing so, he he changed music history. And that's why I asked him, this is the guy with the knowledge. <laughs> Got to break his balls once in a while. And, and right now we're going to talk about an important thing because in 1958, you talk about changing things. Uh, Muddy Waters tour England with Otis Spahn, where they were wow. backed by a local Dixieland-style bunch of musicians. Yeah. And at the time, the Brits were very blues, but only acoustic. They didn't know anything. They weren't expecting Muddy to be this electri electrified actor. They didn't like him. Yes. Okay, it changed everything. Uh, audiences were not prepared, like I said, for his electrified sound. He's, he played slide guitar as well, which is something that they really didn't know too much. Yeah. Now, up-and-coming British blues guys like Alexis Corner and Cyril Davies became inspired to go electric at that point, okay? Right after seeing Muddy Waters live in 58. Um, members of, of guys that would become the Rolling Stones, Cream, Fleetwood Mac, early Fleetwood Mac, the Peter Green Fleetwood Mac, uh, were all influenced by Muddy. There's just no doubt, okay? And they were at these shows that he did, you know? Now, in 1960, uh, Muddy recorded one of the first live blues albums called uh it was it was recorded at the newport jews uh jazz jews newport, newport jazz jazz not jazz, jews jazz. jazz festival okay let me cleanse my mouth there were people ready for him like that was an album that took off yeah it, it was it was and uh you know they weren't recording too much at these newport festivals and and they recorded him and it was a big hit uh, he actually was nominated for a Grammy because uh, of that album. He didn't win, but he was nominated. He would win plenty of Grammys. In 1963, he tried to connect with the the folk music scene that was big at the time. Yeah. And they did an acoustic album with him called Folk Singer. Now, you know, blues and folk were very close. Okay, But not the same. Not the same. And uh, it didn't do well. Commercially, critically, it was very acclaimed, very praised. Uh, commercially, it didn't do well. They wanted fans wanted to hear that electrified blues from Muddy. Uh, Buddy Guy actually plays on that acoustic album. He was kind of known at the time. Wow. Um, in October of '63, uh, it, it was it began what was a, a first of several annual European tours that he would do. Uh, they were organized by something called the American Folk Blues Festival. And these would be 
Um, these would be shows that would tour over Europe. It would be folk and blues guys together. Yep. Um, and it was a very good, fantastic show. Yes, it was. It was. And he would start doing acoustic numbers mixed in with electrified acts as well on these tours. Now, in 67, he recorded several blues standards with Bo Diddley, Little Walter, and Howlin' Wolf together. Uh, Howlin' Wolf is big, his big rival. It was called Super Blues. Yeah, they didn't like each other. And I, don't, I don't think it was that they didn't like each other. I mean, I'm sure maybe words were said. I'm sure Howlin' Wolf was a big guy. He had no problem speaking his mind. Maybe yeah. he got in Muddy's face. I have no idea. Um, I'll be up and draw you both street. <laughs> now, the band was called Super Super Blues Band. Okay, and it was a, kind of like a super group. It sounds fantastic. Yes. In 68, uh, at the instigation of Marshall Chess, who was the son of Leonard Chess, I believe, he recorded an album called Electric Mud uh, in an attempt to kind of revitalize his commercial success that he had a few years earlier. He was doing very well touring-wise, but his commercial sales on albums kind of dropped off a little bit. Uh Chess had put together this psychedelic soul-type band to back him, um, and it bombed. <coughs> Excuse me. It bombed. It didn't do well. It only got to number 127 on the charts, and critics didn't like it. Okay? And Muddy would disown it himself. Now, I'm going to say something. I absolutely love that album. Which one? Electric. Motor. Electric. Okay. I don't know why uh, it's shit on and, and, and not critically acclaimed. I think it's great. Uh, he has a, a tight band playing him. It's a little bit, you know, there's a lot of wah-wah and yeah. fuzz. It's, okay. It's, it's, it sounds like one band recording. Yeah. And and I think it's a great album, Electric Mud. Uh, Hal and Wolf do a similar kind of album with that, with some of his songs. And I think that's great, too. Now, later in 1969, he recorded and released the album Fathers and Sons, uh, which featured a return to his classic blues sound. Uh, Michael Bloomfield would play with him. Paul Butterfield would be on that album. Uh, they, he backed him, and it became his most successful album in his career, getting to number 70 on Billboard Top 200 charts. So, you know, when I'm talking about commercial success, I'm talking about in the R&B world. Yeah. Okay. He never got higher than number 70 on the album charts, which is was was great for an R&B. But it's amazing. At the time. Yeah. Yeah. Because he had that voice. That he did. He voice. did. Voice and he could play. He, he really could play. In 71, uh, a show at Mr. Kelly's, which was an upscale Chicago nightclub, was recorded and released, and it kind of shifted gears for Muddy because what was happening by the early 70s is he was playing for much whiter audiences. Yes, More white people were interested and uh, than there were black people at the time, and uh, that kind of had started happening through the 60s. By the 70s, it had kind of transitioned to a mo more of a white audience. And I think that had to do with what went on in England. Okay. Uh, in England, the British bands all were influenced by Muddy. And they kind of made their own sound and spit it back at the United States. 
and this is kind of what we were we were hearing. They and, did that for a while. These yeah, people. and on for through the mid '60s to the early '70s, and uh, it, it it kind of transitioned the audiences for a lot of these these black blues guys from Chicago and, and there was no originally from that, the south. There was no reason at all. They just wanted to party and everybody else. Mm -hmm. It just happened in '72. He won his first Grammy for the category Best Ethnic or Traditional Recording uh, for the album They Call Me Muddy Waters. Very good album. Uh, an album of previously unreleased material. Now, later in 72, he would fly to England to record the album The London Muddy Waters Sessions. Uh, this was something that they were doing to kind of have... British musicians that were influenced by Muddy be able to play with him on it. Okay. Uh, you had Rory Gallagher playing with him. Yeah. Steve, yeah, yeah. Steve Winwood playing with them. Big uh, Rick Gretsch, Mitch Mitchell was playing with them. All great British blues guys. Um, they play on this album. A Muddy, for some reason, which I don't get, uh, didn't like the album he didn't like the sound he thought it was too much of kind of a a rock sound and not a blues sound but it was very uh, rockish yes it was it was when you know well, when guys like rory gallagher on it you know that, that's what it's going to sound like i i've heard the album i think it's interesting to to hear him play with these guys uh they obviously are in in awe of him they would be i'm sure but uh, they 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 did a great job backing him. I think it's a good record. Um, he would win a Grammy for it. <laughs> All right, he didn't like the record, but he still won a fucking Grammy. He had a Grammy for it. He loves <laughs> soul music. It's great so far. This is great, fantastic fucking information. Yeah, yeah. Now he also would win a Grammy for his very last record on Chess. Uh, that would be called the Muddy Waters Woodstock album. Now, not it was it's called Woodstock. Woodstock. He didn't play Woodstock. It wasn't Woodstock there? Okay, it was recorded in Woodstock, but recorded in 1975. Okay, not Damn. not the 69, not the 1969. Yeah, yeah. Now it was. He has a yeah, and it wasn't a. <laughs> He would have done well at uh, he would have done well at Woodstock because it, I it think was, some it was, people it was, love it. He yeah, was, well, his name was Muddy, and they rolled around in the mud. But he was also <laughs> his times so where he could have talked to them about it. He, they, they didn't have acts. He like would have a good job. I don't I know why they didn't. They, they they didn't have like old blues guys play Woodstock. They should have, right? I, yeah, they, they yeah. was yeah. To bring him back Woodstock? No, I mean to bring up people to help these idiot play. Oh wow. Okay. Well, that's a different story. Now, he would uh, he would um, have a new guitarist at that time for this album, uh, a guy named Bob Margolin. Uh, he had a guy named Pine Top Perkins playing with him, Paul Butterfield again, uh, Levin Helm, and Garth Hudson of the band, the Bob Dylan, the band. Okay, he's also featured as a special guest in the Martin Scorsese-directed film, uh, The Last Waltz. Okay, you see a little bit of Muddy in that movie, and that's about the band's farewell concert. Um, he's in that. From 77 to 1981, uh, Muddy began a collaboration with a fan and a new friend, and that man's name was Johnny Winter. 
famous guitar player. He would Johnny would 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 produce four of the next, well, four of the next four Muddy albums. Wow. Okay. He would and uh, basically uh, three of them were studio albums. One was live. Okay. You had 1977's Hard Again. You had I'm Ready in 1978. King B, 1981. And then you have the live Muddy Mississippi. What is that came out in 1979. Uh, Hard Again is considered almost like a comeback album. Dude, but at this point, did he become like a Bruce singer? Or like oh, he's always just... sang, Rob. He always sang. I know that but on the side, like singing for people. Because by the end of it, the guy was um, trying to sing in New York City. He Look, he, he, he would tour a lot. Okay? Uh, but if you look at it, he actually re was recording a lot at that point, too. He was 77, 78, 79, and 81. Yeah. Okay, so you know he was he was prolific at that point, and Johnny Winter man, and he was influenced by him, and he could definitely you know help his career. So we did, you know. In '81, Muddy was invited to perform at uh, the Chicago Festival. It's the city's top outdoor music festival, and he was joined on stage by Johnny Winter. Johnny came on stage with him, and somebody named Buddy Miles which I'm sure you all know. Uh, he played classics like Manish Boy, Trouble No More, uh, Got My Mojo Work, and he always played that, uh, to a whole new generation of fans. Uh, this was the early 80s. Uh, people were, you know, young people were starting to get interested in his music. Uh, November 22nd, he would perform live with Mick Jack, Keith Richards, and Ronnie Wood at the Checkerboard Lounge in Chicago. Uh, there's a great footage of that, which probably you can see on YouTube, but it is out on DVD if you want to, if you want to buy it. Um, just seeing Muddy on stage with the Stones, that's like very fucking cool. Um, now in the summer of 82, Muddy was in poor health at that point. He died no. soon. Okay. He would, he would, he would die the, the next year. Um, he sat in on Eric Clapton's band at a concert in Florida, and that would be his very last public appearance. Uh, his health would take a, a dive at, after that point. Um, he had cancer, okay, and uh, he would die in his sleep on April 30th, 1983, from heart failure related to his cancer. Damn. Yeah, he was 70 years old, okay, uh, a long time he lived. And his funeral was held on May 4th, and there were throngs of musicians from all different eras attending his funeral at the Rest Cemetery in Alsa, Illinois. Uh, he's buried next to his wife, Geneva, who passed away about 10 years earlier. Uh, interestingly enough, he, he married uh, right before he died, a couple of years before he died, he married a 19-year-old girl. <laughs> Nothing like being 60-something and marrying a 19-year-old. Okay, so good for him. Uh, you know, the legacy of Muddy Waters is still there today. Anybody picking up a guitar, uh, you have to. You have you, to pick you, up. You a have guitar. to listen to these old guys and 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 figure out what they were doing. He he, you know, a lot of people think like that blues stuff is very easy to play. It is not. 
It is not. Uh, I know guitar players that just, you know, when they start doing it, they don't know how to do it. Okay. Yeah, no so, you know, so really it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. And, and uh, when we did all those blues guys back in February, Muddy came up a lot in the history of, of those guys too. I mean, he knew Robert Johnson. He knew, he knew Howard Wolf. Right. He knew uh, Sun House. He knew those early, early guys, early Patton. He knew them when he was young. He didn't play with them, but he was influenced yeah. by them. He was influenced by them. So that's all I got for you today, Mr. Rossi. Very good. Muddy Waters. Get lumped up on the rock show.